Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is episode six of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy. Find out more on our website at docio.edconroy.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Docio podcast with myself, Edmund Conroy. You have joined me for the second in a two-part episode on the meaning of death and dying, where I am talking to Professor Michael Cholby from the University of Edinburgh. This also happens to be the last episode in the pilot series, The Meaning Of. So far this season, we have spoken to Professor Andrew Fiala on the meaning of peace and pacifism and Professor Frederick Neumeyer on the meaning of linguistics. But this is the episode dedicated to my interview with Professor Michael Cholby, and this is part two. Please do enjoy the episode. You can read more from Professor Cholby on his website, michael.cholby.com, on his University of Edinburgh profile, as well as finding out more information on the docio.edconroy.co.uk website. So, without further ado, please welcome my guest, Professor Michael Cholby, Chair of Philosophy at the University of Edinburgh, as we discuss the meaning of death and dying. You're listening to episode 6 of the Docio Podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. If we could just kind of sideways to something that impacts grief but is also an interesting study in itself. And I know you've done podcasts on this before. I know you've written about this. I, in fact, I, I read one particular article and I, I want to discuss that with you in a moment. But before we get there, which I mm-hmm. appreciate, for those listening, that um, is a rather delicate subject I appreciate. So just a warning there, I suppose, if you're listening. But before we kind of just start any discussion on suicide, a couple of kind of questions for you. Could you explain what you mean when you use the term suicide and further how this is different from kind of similar concepts such as assisted dying or assisted suicide, which I think are interchangeable. And perhaps we could also talk about those acts which we know or suspect will result in our death, whether such as caused by smoking or alcohol or such as running across a highway. So they're self-inflicted in the causing of another to kill us. So Mm -hmm. could you just... I guess, define philosophically for us, suicide. Big question, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's okay. So I think the, the answer one sees articulated most often in the philosophical literature is that suicide is intentional self-killing. Now, I think that answer is very much on the right track, but 
uh, leaves, if you will, sort of certain loose ends, right? Certain kinds of uh, examples where maybe it's not perfectly obvious what that definition implies about those examples. And in particular, there's a couple of dimensions of that definition that I think we can interrogate. One of them is the notion of self-killing, right? So I take it that the right way to think about self-killing in that definition is not to view self there as cause, right? But to view self there more as agent, right? So, you know, you raise the example of, or the phenomenon of assisted suicide. And I imagine when we think of that, we're thinking mainly of medically assisted suicide as is practiced in, you know, some parts of the United States, Netherlands, few other parts of the world. And there, right, um, gather that what's going on in some cases is that the cause of one's death may not be one's own actions. It may be that someone else, for example, is administering, say, a lethal medication to you, but they're doing it with your consent or at your instigation, right? So it's not the case that the self there is the cause in an immediate sense of, of one's own death, but you are the cause in the sense that you are the agent that endorses and, if you will, sort of catalyzes or brings about one's own death. The other tricky part of the definition is intentional. So we know that suicidal behavior can sometimes be ambivalent, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a good bit of behavior that could be described as, on the one hand, self-destructive, but at the same time, so self-destructive that we might wonder whether it edges then into behavior that's suicidal, right? And I've wrestled with this a lot in my work, and I'm not satisfied with the answers that I've arrived at, to be honest with you. But I do think that the difference... um, there or the difference that we are trying to identify is a difference between behavior that one believes is risky to oneself, but one does not want the risk to eventuate in death, right? And behavior that is risky to oneself, but one in some sense endorses, right, the risk of death as a consequence of, of one's actions. So the person who you know, uh, engages in some sort of extreme sports, right? You know, mountaineering or something like that, right? Knowing full well, right, that that's that's an enterprise that can be risky to you. People do die in the course of, you know, climbing, uh, you know, Himalayan mountains and so on. I don't take it that their behavior is suicidal. They're trying to avoid the risks to some degree to the extent that they can, right? But on the other hand, right, there are behaviors that are perhaps somewhat more difficult to classify but they look like people engaging in behavior that they know to be risky to themselves, but within some sense, a willingness to take that risk with the understanding that this could well lead to their own death, right? They're not trying to avoid the risk, they're in some sense welcoming the risk. So a person who you know, is addicted to a very strong um, you know, drug, something like heroin, right, might know that you know, his or her habit is, is leading toward taking increasingly high doses of this drug right, as, as tolerance develops. There might at some point be a point where they kind of know that they're maybe risking death, right, by taking increasingly high doses. And then the question is, are they taking it um, hoping that they don't die or are they taking it accepting that they, that they will or they may? Um, that's a very fine line, right? And I'm not sure I would know how to utilize that position in thinking about particular cases, but I think that's where the line is. You're listening to episode 6 of the Docio Podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. It's something that you discussed in your article, Self-Manslaughter and the Forensic Classification of Self-Inflicted Death. 
which I found a fascinating read. And I have to say, I largely agree um, with your conclusions and your arguments, I would have said. But I did have that one question, and I've alluded to it in my previous question, what I would term perhaps longer term self-killing. And I'm trying to use this phrase carefully, but my action to smoke is likely to cause cancer my, or you know, uh, my constant eating of fatty food is likely to cause a heart attack at some point. Whatever the result, the cause is the same, one's own behavior. Um, and I think a lot of people today, they, they know that this behavior will almost certainly kill them, almost certainly because, you know, you might get hit by a bus before that eventuality, you know. So unless something else does that first, are these deaths suicide are they self-manslaughter how do we describe them and I, I want to turn this in another i want to phrase this with the other proposition that if someone has spent 30 years being slowly poisoned drop by drop by their lover in very low dosages it's still considered murder under the law is this not kind of the same thing except it's self-inflicted mm -hmm. well to circle back a little bit Perhaps a pithy way to express what I was uh, saying in response to your previous question is that perhaps one way to, to understand the difference between risky behavior concerning ourselves and suicidal behavior uh, is that the suicidal person is trying to die, right? And I gather that in the case of someone smoking or eating a poor diet, they're not trying to die. They'd very much not like to die in most cases, right? Um, they may be quite aware right, that their behavior is increasing the risk of their death at a certain point, right, increasing the risk that they will die prematurely, that is to say, die earlier than they otherwise would have, but still be resisting, right, this in certain, certain ways. Now, as I said earlier, I, I find these issues extremely intricate, and I'm not entirely satisfied with some of the conclusions that I've, I've reached. But I do think the notion of, of trying to die seems to be an important, you know, boundary, right, between a person merely doing something risky and doing something that we might think of as suicidal. I do think there are some options, logically speaking, that we tend to overlook. And here I'm, I'm making reference to the, the paper you were discussing where I make use of, of the notion of self-manslaughter. One possibility is that maybe we should think that suicidal behavior sits on a continuum. So rather than saying that, you know, such and such a bit of behavior is or is not, is or not, is, sorry, is or is not suicidal, pardon me, perhaps we should talk about it being more or less suicidal. Right. Right. Uh, that seems to me to be, you know, a, a understandable way of thinking about these things. And it accords well with how some people who are mental health professionals think about these things. Right. You know, there are various psychiatric inventories that are performed on people you know, to assess their degree of suicidal intent or suicidal ideation. And they're not so much intended to um, show us that someone is or is not suicidal, but sort of to give us kind of a, a degree of suicidality. The other possibility, and this is the one that I was um, exploring in the paper you mentioned, is say, look, maybe we need more categories, right? Mm. Rather than saying, well, here's risky behavior, here's suicidal behavior, maybe we need another category, uh, and that's the category that I introduce in my paper, I call self-manslaughtering behavior, where you undertake certain kinds of risks, right, with respect to the self, without undertaking, if you will, risk-mitigating behaviors, right? Knowing quite well right, that in doing this, you may well be taking such a great risk that you're, you know, putting yourself at a decent chance of, of, of dying thereby. So I think that there are some, some moves that can be made here, maybe to get, out, get us out of this kind of 
maybe overly simplified binary of either you know suicide versus not suicide. Maybe it's more or less. Maybe we also maybe we could also think again about you know there being multiple categories here to think about these kinds of risky behaviors. You're listening to episode six of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. I just wondered whether these behaviours that we talk about, lifestyle behaviours, which almost certainly, and you can never say certain, can you? But you know what I mean. High chance probability will lead to death. It's that long term look. So we, we might talk about the, the heroin overdose or the drug overdose, as, as, as you alluded to. And, and we would consider that perhaps self manslaughter under your category because it's not, you know. Yeah. But it's instant. And I wondered about those longer term ones where you're you're slowly drip feeding yourself poison effectively. And if it was your spouse doing it to you, it would be murder. Um, but if it was if they were doing it intentionally, um, if you're doing yeah. it. And I guess that intention is an agency and all of that is 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 really kind of it's where it where it sits, isn't it? It's very difficult. Yeah. to play. Well, raised a lot of issues, I think, in the philosophy of action. Again, as I was saying, I think, you know, there's a couple of things to interrogate in that orthodox definition of suicide as intentional self-killing. One is the self part, the other is the intentional part. I take it that intention is, has, or at least contains as, as part of it, right, sort of encapsulates within it something like endorsement, right? So, you know, when you're doing something intentionally, it's not just the case that you foresee, right, that some effect will be the result of your behavior. You foresee it and you say, and good for that. Right. Okay. Right. Um, I gather that the person, most people, right, who are, you know, habitual smokers, for example, right, don't have that in their heads, right? Okay. You know, they may well foresee that they're shortening uh, their lives thereby, but they're again not trying to shorten their lives. They're not, they're not in an interesting sense uh, intending it, right, in the sense that, you know, they may well foresee it, but they're, they're sort of saying, let this not be so. You know, I want to be one of the lucky ones who manages not to develop lung cancer as a result of my behavior. You know, I'm, I'm crossing my fingers, et cetera. Uh, when the time comes, I'm definitely going to get, you know, uh, the treatments for, for whatever uh, illnesses my smoking leads to. So I think, you know, again, the crucial distinctions seem to be, again, between, you know, knowing that one is taking risk, believing that one is taking risk, and believing or knowing that one is taking risk, and in some sense endorsing that risk. You're listening to episode six of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. I just wanted to kind of talk about dignity and worth. Now, I was reading one of your articles on Kant around this subject. My top question is, how should we distinguish between human dignity and human worth? Are they the same thing or is there a difference in Kantian philosophy? So that's the header. If they are different, why is our understanding of dignity so tied to the, our concept of position, status, class and character, as opposed to our understanding generally of all being equal in worth? Or is this a false dichotomy? Are they the same thing? And so if so, how are they the same? From my understanding of your article, Kant saw two versions of dignity. One that is perhaps best termed as human worth, inalienable, and the other is perhaps closer to our use of it to talk of someone being dignified or being honourable. Is that a correct understanding? And could you elaborate on that? Well, I think the first thing to say is that philosophically, dignity is a mess, right? Many philosophers, several philosophers in recent decades, 
have observed that talk of dignity is extremely popular, right? People who, you know, going back to an issue we were discussing earlier, people who oppose the legalization of assisted dying sometimes say that they oppose it because of human dignity. People who support the legalization of assisted dying sometimes crouch their support in terms of dignity. So dignity is sort of this all-purpose moral concept, I would say, nowadays, right? Hardly anybody's against it. But on the other hand, uh, people seem to clearly use it in different sorts of ways. They clearly can't be using it in the same way, since, of course, as I was just mentioning, they manage to defend different positions by appeal to the same, same term. So it's really just a mess. And I'm not sure I have any settled view as to what we should be saying or doing when we invoke the notion of dignity. What I do, I guess, have a view on is what Kant, who's been a very prominent figure in philosophical discussions of dignity, thought about all of this, right? Whether, you know, his own views map on to what, you know, people nowadays are meaning by dignity, I actually am somewhat skeptical of that. But I think that there are some distinguishing features of the way that Kant employed the notion of dignity. One of them is what you were referencing a moment ago. So dignity is something that belongs to each and every human agent because we are practically rational beings. We can you know, choose for ourselves what our, our goals and ends are and how to go about pursuing them. Because of this, we have a kind of worth that Kant designates with the term translated as dignity. Notice that this seems to imply that the, the most well-born or the most distinguished or the most talented don't have any greater dignity than, you know, the most marginalized figure in a community. Dignity is dignity is dignity, I think, on Kant's view. It doesn't sort of vary in degree or magnitude across those who have it, right? So it's a deeply egalitarian conception of dignity. But also, it's, it's not a conception of dignity wherein one's dignity oscillates or wavers, right, across one's lifespan, right? It's not the case that you know, for Kant, you can gain one, your dignity or you can lose it, right? In his writings on capital punishment, right, Kant famously said that even, you know, despite the villainy of the murderer and our right to execute the murderer, in his estimation, the murderer retains dignity, right? And there are certain things that we're not to do to him because he has dignity. We're not to, you know, sort of humiliate him or, you know, once he's dead, you know, uh, feed his body to animals or something like that. So, for Kant, right, I think dignity is this deeply egalitarian feature, right, of human beings that's rooted in uh, each of us being uh, able to to make our own choices, figure out how to pursue our chosen ways of life. And in this sense, I think it, it definitely varies, right, from, from notions of dignity that have been historically influential, right, but also notions of dignity that you see nowadays, right? So, for example, you know, Kant wouldn't say that, Kant would actually, I think, be somewhat antagonistic to the idea that you sometimes hear expressed by again, supporters of assisted dying, that sometimes, you know, you can have an illness that is so, you know, horrifying, so wretched, that it reduces you to a state of indignity. And Kant would say, well, actually, no, it doesn't reduce you to a state of indignity. Your dignity is there, you know, whether or not, right, you ha would have this illness. I just think dignity so, is a mess. Uh, everybody loves it, but it is. Yeah. So. Okay. No, that, that's, that's, that's helpful. You're listening to episode 6 of the Docio Podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. So you've, you've moved us on to the next subject already, which is the one of assisted dying, again, something you've written a lot about. 
So when we're talking about assisted dying, I noticed that a lot of the questions of right to die and uh, the more narrow arguments around duty to die, would that be fair to characterize them as a primarily utilitarian in their uh, position? So for those listening, um, that is generally the quote, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, uh, to quote Scott. Mm-hmm. But apparently that idea of um, the needs of the many outweighing the needs of the few is older. It goes back at least to Caiaphas in the Gospel of John. But that, uh, just to highlight that Spock would actually be alien to utilitarianism because they're more about, so whilst we today secularly, non-philosophically might see him as a kind of utilitarian exemplar, or at least that phrase, it falls down because his logic is alien to utilitarian thinking. Utilitarian at its concept has this idea of happiness and suffering and that an action is morally right if it brings happiness and morally bad if it brings suffering. The only good things bring happiness and the only bad things are those that bring suffering. So most assisted dying arguments, uh, you, you, you can correct me. Don't, 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 don't feel bad about correcting me. So most assisted dying arguments that I've seen and read have to be kind of utilitarian, almost on both those grounds, whether that's the right to die or the duty to die, um, uh, around that happiness suffering argument. Uh, is, that, is that correct, would you have said? Uh, well, I would say with respect to the duty to die that you are right, that those who have taken seriously the idea that we might sometimes have a duty to die have often appealed to utilitarian reasoning, right? Probably the most famous example of this is the philosopher John Hardwick, who in the 1990s published an article called Is There a Duty to Die? Uh, and spoiler alert, the answer is at least sometimes yes. And the reasoning that he gave was that sometimes by continuing to exist, we're imposing very weighty burdens on others that we ought not impose upon them. And we're gaining relatively little from ourselves sometimes by continuing to live. And so the balance from a utilitarian point of view of, of happiness versus suffering speaks in favor, right? Uh, sometimes of us, of us ending our lives. I would say though that that's not what you said earlier is probably not accurate to the way most of at least the defenses of, of assisted dying, of a right to die, tend to unfold. I think most of the defenses of a right to die or of assisted dying don't really invoke utilitarian considerations. They invoke something like individual rights. And the way that these arguments tend to go is they invoke this or that uh, individual right, such as you know, a right to determine the circumstances of one's own death or a, a kind of right to medical autonomy, say a right to receive the, the medical treatments that are best for you, perhaps a, a, a certain kind of right in general to, to personal liberty, right to engage in behaviors, cooperative behaviors, transactions with others that are for your own benefit. So I think that rights talk, rights vocabulary has actually been much more prominent talking about the, you know, the right to assisted suicide than utilitarian reasoning has. Um, so this is to say that utilitarian reasoning doesn't show up there. Utilitarian reasoning shows up everywhere. Philosophy, it's, it's a prominent uh, line of thought. But I don't think that utilitarian thinking has been front and center, I would say, in at least in defenses of the right to die. You're listening to episode six of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. And I'm right to think and to say that you are Kantian 
or a follower of Emmanuel Kant, would that be a correct way of describing your philosophical outlook? Yes, except a deeply heterodox one. I mean, a lot of my work involves thinking that Kant had certain principles that he accepted that are kind of plausible, but very often that his own applications of those principles was mistaken. That, you know, if we were to be able to uh, imagine a kind of uh, Kant doppelganger, a contemporary Kant, he wouldn't necessarily hold the views that Kant had on any number of, of practical questions. But I think that a lot of my own work is very much influenced by certain kinds of Kantian ideals, foremost among them being the idea that individuals you know, have a certain kind of significance. Uh, I tend not to use the notion of dignity there, but a certain kind of significance because they are rational agents that allows them to make choices concerning you know, what's good for them, largely without interference from others. You're listening to episode six of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. So I, I, I'm looking at the time and I, I appreciate we haven't got terribly long left, so I'm going to move us on. And I know that that's another big subject I've just kind of brushed over. I feel like each of these could be a, a podcast in themselves of about, you know, uh, I, I'm guessing you've written books on them. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, <laughs> they're, they're big subjects and I, I'm trying to pick out the pertinent questions. But I wanted to move on to the other kind of big subjects you've covered. And I, I, I read your chapter, Immortality and the Exhaustibility of Value uh, mm-hmm. in the book, which I found a fascinating read. I thoroughly enjoyed this. But I, I wanted to ask for some of your thoughts on some reaction that I had to that. But I think before I move on, I just need to exa- explain a little bit. Or perhaps you'd be better to explain what your article is about uh, rather sure. than me <laughs> interpreting sure. it. Well, there's been a very lively philosophical debate over the past about almost 50 years now about whether it would be good for us to be immortal. And you have on the one hand, some very formidable philosophers that may be well known to some people who might hear this podcast, Bernard Williams, for example, arguing that it'd be bad for us. He thinks that it'd ultimately be tedious, boring, meaningless. But on the other hand, a number of other uh, philosophical enthusiasts for immortality who think that you know, immortal life would give us opportunities for the pursuit of all kinds of good things that you know, we're, we're precluded from pursuing because our lives are you know, relatively short, 70, 80, 90 odd years. But my article is an intervention in that discussion, and it amounts to an intervention along these lines. That discussion has mainly concerned itself with whether the good things that we recognize in finite human lives would sort of run out of value in an immortal human life. So, you know, Bernard Williams asks, you know, is there any hobby, is there any pursuit, any source of fulfillment that a person might have that they wouldn't eventually get bored of, right, in an immortal life? And he thinks the answer is no. Other people think, yeah, you know, we could pursue these things forever and ever, and we would never get tired of them. Our lives would still be gratifying and rewarding to us, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's a a good conversation to have, but my intervention uh, amounts to asking this. What about the bad things, right? Uh, you know, human life has some bads in it. Would the bad things persist in immortal life? If so, you know, would they persist to the same degree or in the same magnitude as they present themselves to us in our mortal lives? And essentially the conclusion I argue for in that article is, 
Well, I, I think some people said it's kind of a meh conclusion, but it might be interesting anyway, which is that probably immortal lives would have the same mix, right, of good and bad things that our mortal lives would. You know, there will be heartbreak and frustration and competition and anger and all kinds of things uh, among immortals, things that make our own lives less satisfying than they might otherwise be. And there's no sort of reason to think that even if we did, right, still retain all the good things of human life in an immortal life, that we might also carry forward all of the bad things too. So basically, I think immortal human lives would be longer. I'm not sure that they would be better necessarily. You're listening to episode 6 of the Docio Podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. Your, your article, your, I read it as a chapter in a book, your edited volume, actually, you edited the volume, um, that essentially immortality is not as desirable as mortality. And I, 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 again, I largely agree with your conclusions, which doesn't mean anything because, you know, I'm not a, a, a philosopher um, in the sense of academical credentials. But I did have a couple of questions. And this was about, I wondered whether the conversation was missing metrics. Now, maybe that's the language I'm using is coming from the wrong perspective here. But I saw the good as one metric, bad as another metric, and the measurement of whether they continue or don't continue and the amounts that was a metric. So I guess I had my, my first metric that I kind of wanted to ask was about the human quality that some humans have in more capacity than others. And that is contentment which I would say, and maybe I'm wrong here, is uh, neither good nor bad experientially, but it's the ability of individuals to be content in all circumstances, to endure, survive, and to thrive. And the individuals who perhaps manifest this quality would perhaps be more suited, at least, to immortality, possibly even to thrive in that. So would that, do you feel, alter the desirability of immortality? And if not, I guess why not, is the question. Well, so I think one of the things to say here is that in addition to inviting greater attention to the bads of human life and whether those would again sort of carry over into to an immortal human life, I also think that some of the uh, philosophical literature on the value of immortality has uh, been prone to a misstep. And the misstep is supposing that immortality would be you know, sort of universally good or bad, right? Uh, it seems to me pretty likely that immortality will look like mortality in the following way. Mortal human beings differ in various sorts of ways. As you were saying, one of the ways that people differ is in their ability to, to uh, I guess, be at ease in the world, to be content. And that kind of diversity is going to be present among immortal human beings, no less than it's present among mortal human beings. So, you know, I, I'm somewhat skeptical of any ar argument that, that tries to persuade us that immortal life would be good for everyone or that, you know, mortal, uh, immortal life would be worse or bad for everyone. It seems to be pretty likely it's going to be good for some, maybe a handful at least. It could well be bad for others. You know, as I was mentioning a while back, you know, Bernard Williams famously argued that immor immortality would be boring. But it's interesting to note that, you know, some of the psychological research on boredom essentially tells us that, you know, uh, w 
the reason why people become boring, uh, sorry, the reason why they become uh, uh, bored is because they're boring, right? People who are curious and, and, you know, like to think about new things are open to experience, don't become bored. People who aren't curious, who aren't very open to experience, do become bored. So the problem here is not, the problem is probably not that, you know, immortality would be boring for all of us. It'd be boring for boring people. But they're already bored, you know, in 75 yeah. years of life or so. Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't present any new problem. But likewise, you know, maybe the person who, you know, is, again, intensely curious, intensely acquisitive, open to experience, uh, et cetera, perhaps there could be an immortal life for them that would be worth having. But I'm just skeptical of any kind of blanket answer, right, about yeah. well-being and, and immortality. Okay. Just in the same way, I think we should be skeptical about, you know, anybody says – you know, I'm going to tell you whether, you know, human lives are good or bad. Well, what do you mean, right? Some of them are good and some of them are bad and they follow along a continuum. So there's no reason to expect that won't hold true among immortals too. You're listening to episode six of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. Funnily enough, I think you've also answered the question surrounding my my second proposed metric, which was uh, meaning and purpose, if one's life has meaning and mm-hmm. purpose. And that is something that can continue, whether that's eradicating hunger, if you're a judge, it's dispensing justice, if you're a reader, soaking up all of those books or watching mm-hmm. all of those movies, whatever your thing is. And obviously the pitfall there is, of course, um, it doesn't necessitate a good thing. So one's purpose, uh, a megalomaniac or a despotic leader, is driven to uh, obtain mortal- immortality for the same reasons that the per- their purpose and meaning continues. But I think you've already answered that because it's about individuals at that level, isn't it? It's not the overarching metric, I, I guess. There is no overarching yeah. metric metric it would be an individual whether it would be good for the individual or not i mean i do think there's something to the thought which i think is prevalent you know in many cultures both western and non-western that the desire for immortality is somewhat egocentric Mm. right that there's a way in which you know the desire for immortality sometimes reflects a kind of vanity right wanting to be something other than one is right namely mortal and finite I think meaning and purpose are are more intricate issues, I think, than sort of happiness or well-being. In fact, I think they can come apart, right? I think people can live lives that are quite unhappy, but in some cases very meaningful, right? I think immortality would actually be a little bit more of a threat to meaningfulness than it is to well-being. And the reason for that is that, in my view at least, meaningfulness involves a certain sense of commitment and urgency to one's life. And one of the things that would be true about immortality is that when you take out the constraints of time, right, and there wouldn't really be any constraints of time for immortals, I do worry that our lives would not have the same level of urgency or be, you know, galvanized by the same level of commitment that our finite lives do, right? I mean, we know, I think, deep down in our psyches that we are mortal, and so we have to, you know, if we are to to accomplish things, you know, live meaningful, purposeful lives, we have to commit to things, and we can't commit to everything. Right. We have to make choices. And that's sort of our existential dilemma. So I do think that immortality maybe is a little bit less desirable when we pose the question in terms of meaningfulness or purposefulness than when we pose it in connection with well-being. You're listening to episode six of the Docio podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio podcast.
I did get some questions from friends that they were asked to me orally um, and I wrote down quick notes at the time. So I've expanded their questions, which is a bit cheeky, but I hope they won't mind. A lady called Anne, also from Clackmannanshire in Scotland, asks, in Judeo-Christian scriptures, there is a verse that translates roughly as God has placed eternity into the hearts of men. Considering how humanity has quested for immortality, whether that's the philosopher's stone or the fountain mm-hmm. of use, do you think there is at least the concept of or immortality and eternity, which is indeed part of the human condition, so to speak? Well, so in the 19, in 1973, Ernest Becker, who was a kind of an academic polyglot, right? I suppose he was an anthropologist at heart, but you know he was someone who had a very multidisciplinary outlook on things, wrote a book called The Denial of Death which was much revered and, and, and well-known. And um, one of the central themes of Becker's work is that uh, human beings have a kind of innate, profound longing for uh, continued existence, right? And of course, they also, at the same time, we human beings are perhaps unique among creatures in not merely being aware of death, but knowing about its inevitability, right? So we have to live with death in a way that I suppose, you know, a cat or a sparrow or, you know, a whale doesn't have to, right? Uh, you know, we, we know about it, right? Um, so, so we tend to understandably, you know, shape our lives and live our lives um, cognizant, perhaps somewhere deep in the recesses of our consciousness, cognizant, right, of the fact of our mortality. In fact, Becker and, and later um, um, uh, social psychologists, uh, uh, Sheldon Solomon et al. and their terror management theory essentially think that, you know, many of the features of human life, human culture, religion and, and, and government and, and art and so forth are in some sense grounded, right, in this kind of anxiety or worry about the finitude of, of human life. So I think as a matter of human psychology, the answer to those questions is, is yes. Um, whether it's a good or healthy thing, I think is is you know uh, a matter of of much philosophical dispute and and you know a, a central subject in in my own teaching in the philosophy of death and dying. Um, you know, I do think that there's something laudable right about about an aspect of of that yearning for mortality, which I think human beings have this desire to transcend their limits, right? Um, I think that's laudable. I have some more reservations about whether the right way to transcend them is to uh, hope that we transcend death itself. Okay. So this last question um, is in two parts. The reason being, I I spoke to my daughter who is four, hoping for something inspirational. um, And I was like, oh, I'm talking to an expert on death, dying, immortality. Um, Did she have any questions? And, And she asked a question, and then she clarified it about three hours later after I'd originally typed it out. So um, she said her question was, do the dead bodies melt away, turn to nothing or float away into the sky? So I interpreted that question as the question of the human soul. Do we have one? And philosophically, how we define its existence and purpose. And then I kind of interpreted the question as do ghosts exist, <laughs> which I don't know whether that's a question for you or for somebody else. But I, I thought I'd ask those yeah. two. And then I'll move on to what she actually clarified it as being later right well um one of the things i emphasize very much in my teaching on the philosophy of death and dying when we talk about immortality is that immortality can take a number of different forms right so one form it could take is that we survive death as immaterial 
non-physical souls, sort of pure consciousnesses without bodies at all. Okay, that's you know the view of of certain you know historically prominent philosophers. Rene Descartes, you know, held a view akin to that. And I suppose it's a very popular view nowadays, right? That there is some aspect of ourselves that is not physical, that is in some sense almost definitive of our sort of mental lives. And though the body can die, the soul lives on, right? So on this picture, death is a kind of separation, right? Of, of you know, one aspect of the self from another aspect, the bodily from the, from the mental. But we could also survive death and be immortal through resurrection. And that's actually, you know, the doctrine, right? Of most all of the monotheistic, you know, faiths and sects is that the way that we survive death is in our bodies, right? Now, your daughter's question, I think, sounds a little bit like resurrection in some sense, right? You know, sort of whether death could involve a kind of, if you will, interruption, right, in our bodily existence that, you know, wherein sort of we, we stop functioning for a bit, but then sort of the functioning, you know, returns, right? That I take it is, is something like what we think of as resurrection. Of course, there's other ways to achieve immortality too, right? I mean, we were talking earlier about sort of the search for the fountain of youth. I mean, one way immortality could in principle be achieved is simply by not dying. And then there's various forms of immortality that, you know, people have called symbolic, right? You know, sort of having a legacy, right? Might be viewed as a sort of, you know, immortality that doesn't involve survival of you, you know, qua person, but survival of your values or your influence or your significance or something like that. I'm skeptical about immortality at a metaphysical level, but I think it's pretty interesting to think about immortality, again, at that sort of symbolic or, or ethical level. So um, my daughter uh, clarified a little bit later that she was talking about the actual physical body um, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, whether it would disintegrate. And obviously most people in the Western culture will talk about it disintegrating into the ground. It will you know, become mm -hmm. part of the earth. Um, food for the worms uh, is the uh, slightly less uh, <laughs> uh, nice way of putting it. Um, yeah. But I think I think actually that's that's not always been the case, has it? Um, do you think that culturally ritual belief, uh, religious belief and praxis, um, and I, I think specifically um, historically of Egyptian mum, mummification, how does belief inform praxis around the way that we look after the body, so to speak? Mm -hmm. uh, does a cultural view the body, do cultural views of the body is important in the afterlife, which is coming back to your resurrection element there. Uh, how does that, does that determine, do you think, the way that we preserve, and does that affect our language and view of, I suppose, physical death? Well, indisputably, yes. I mean, so you certainly see in, in the monotheistic traditions, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, um, beliefs about the appropriate handling of corpses, some of which rest upon beliefs about the potential transformation of the corpse into, again, a sort of immortal body, right? So the stricture that was present in Christianity for quite some time against cremation, right, was uh, to some extent the product of the belief that cremation um, so destroys the elements of the body that they couldn't be resurrected. Right. Yeah. Now, you know, of course, that same belief system held, right, that um, the burial of the body, right, uh, nevertheless did not, right, um, so alter, right, the elements of one's body that one could not be, if you will, sort of reassembled and reanimated and, you know, enjoy, enjoy uh, uh, the afterlife in one's own body. Um, so you see within Christianity, you see it within Islam, you know, beliefs about, you know, how long um, um, the body uh, sort of uh, 
you know, maybe, maybe um, exhibited right before burial. Um, but, you know, these, these beliefs are certainly infused with, um, with metaphysics, right, with metaphysical convictions about, you know, what's going to happen to this very matter. Right. But I do think it's interesting to note, right, that, you know, when you look at surveys of, of contemporary Christian believers, many of them, if I've seen the most recent surveys, many of them are, you know, believers in that immaterial soul. Right. They're kind of metaphysical dualists. Right. Despite the fact that their own, um, you know, religious organizations, their own religious sects um, espouse. Right. Uh, a form of afterlife in terms of resurrection. Right. I mean, the yeah. Catholic you know, Nicene Creed says it right there. Right. We believe in the resurrection of the body. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, it's interesting to note that that resurrection is the is the sort of the orthodox view and this sort of, you know, immaterialist view is, I guess, sort of the more uh, more popular view now. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I guess uh, that's where the film Soul, that recent Disney film kind of fits yeah. in there. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. that's talking pre life, <laughs> but it's also talking post life. You're listening to episode six of the Docio Podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. I mean, there are lots of questions, but we are running out of time. So I do have a final set of questions, very quick fire. They're meant to be fun. They're based on the questionnaire posed by James Lipton in Inside the Axters Studio. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, Uh, which in turn is based on the French TV host Bernard Pivot's questionnaire from Apostrophes, which in turn is based on Marcel Proust's questionnaire, apparently. That's that's the origins of it all. But firstly, uh, just quick fire, fun, nothing serious. What <laughs> is your favourite word? Gosh. What makes you saddest? Pessimism. And what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? One time I thought I was going to be a sports journalist, and I tried that for a while. I, I could imagine rewinding, going back, and giving it another go. That would be okay. What sound or noise do you hate? The silence of, of being in a crowd with everyone on their phones. And this is the final one, which has a lot of relevance to our conversation. But it is the final question that I wrote, which was, if heaven exists, <laughs> what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Don't get too excited. It's just more of the same. You're listening to episode six of the Docio Podcast with Edmund Conroy and Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast. This was episode six of the Docio Podcast, hosted by Edmund Conroy, interviewing Professor Michael Cholby. Find us on Twitter at Docio Podcast or on our website at docio.edconroy.co.uk. And please don't forget to subscribe using your favourite podcast listening platform. And that's all we have time for on this episode, the sixth episode of the Dokio podcast with me, Edmund Conroy. That concludes my interview with Professor Michael Cholby, as well as concluding this, the pilot and first series of the Dokio podcast titled The Meaning Of. If you would like to find out more about what we're planning for the next season, then do hold out till the end of this episode. But please remember, your support will keep the podcast going. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, have a great life. 
it's goodbye from me. Music was provided by freepd.com under a Creative Commons License Zero. Additional voiceover work by Hannah Conroy. All rights reserved. Copyright 2021, the Docio Podcast. If you would like to support the Docio podcast, then please visit our website shop to purchase merchandise or visit patreon.com forward slash docio to financially subscribe to the podcast. Your contribution alone could help the podcast make many more episodes. Hello there, I'm Ed Conroy. I am the host of the Dokio podcast. I'm here to talk about our next season of episodes. It's all a little vague right now, so do bear with me. We're planning on launching our first full series, so that's season two in September of this year, that's 2021. It will be our first full season in that we will have 12 interviews split over 26 two-part episodes running through from September right through to the end of November. Uh, Tentatively we've given it that working title of Let's Talk About and I'm looking for guests and subjects at the moment. I've worked out maybe half the subjects and need to track down some expert philosophers. Some of those tentative subjects include love, money, personhood, free will, lying, politics, that's two separate subjects there, art, parenthood altruism however all podcasts and especially this one need support whether that's sharing it with your friends or donating or even financially subscribing it's one of those essentials as we try to improve our production levels so please do check out the dokio website shop check out our patreon and if there's another way that you'd like to give to us then please do get in contact you can email dokio at edconroy.co.uk and if you're a philosopher or thought leader perhaps you've seen how unscary it is to take part and would love to be interviewed please do send me an email or a tweet at dokio podcast so thank you for listening to this unashamed begging advert and for finding out more for season two.